Hello and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show dedicated to workplace and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Just before Christmas, the Australian Federal Government made several announcements which directly affect the Australian industrial landscape in 2015. First up, we look at what Jed Carney, President of the ACTU, calls a two-pronged attack on penalty rates. The Federal Government has instituted a Fair Work Commission review of the award system and a Productivity Commission inquiry into the entire Australian Workplace Relations Framework. Secondly, we will talk to Chris Wright, Research Fellow at the University of Sydney Business School, about a new Immigration Department discussion paper supporting a short-term mobility visa to import skilled workers on a short-term basis. Our discussion will look more broadly at the government's use of immigration as a lever for dealing with skills gaps in the Australian economy. On a yearly basis, since the Abbott government took office, the threat to penalty rates has been real and ever-present. On December 19, 2014, the Treasurer, Mr Hockey, announced a Productivity Commission inquiry into the entire Australian Workplace Relations Framework due to complete its findings in November 2015. Coupled with a review of awards by the Fair Work Commission, the new attack on penalty rates has put the Australian Labor movement on guard. We spoke to Jed Carney, ACTU President. Well, at the moment there is a review being undertaken by the Fair Work Commission with regards to the modern awards. Now, awards are a safety net below workers can't have their pay and conditions dropped. With the review, employers have made submissions to the Commission saying basically they want to get rid of penalty rates in many instances or certainly lower them. And we're very concerned about that because we know that a lot of people rely on penalty rates just to make ends meet. But more than that, people who work weekends, nights, public holidays, all unsociable hours deserve to get decent compensation for missing out on the leisure time that most of us actually enjoy. Secondly, the Abbott government has commissioned the Productivity Commission to review the Fair Work Act and we know that once again employers will come back to have another go through that avenue to get rid of penalty rates and Australian unions are simply not going to sit back and let that happen. Which uh, areas of the uh, workforce will be mainly affected by this? Workers in industries like retail, hospitality, pharmacy, uh, hair and beauty, fast food, dry cleaning, oh, there's all sorts, amusement events. Pretty much this is coming at a, at a workforce-wide basis and it's something that I think we should be really, really concerned about. You know, many, many people, as I said, rely heavily on penalty rates. I had one a cleaner tell me that he gets $80 extra a week from penalty rates and that means that he can actually afford to buy the medicines that his wife needs for her chronic health conditions. We're talking about people's livelihoods here. We're talking about people being able to pay the rent. We can't just say workers deserve a wholesale pay cut. 
These are the lowest paid workers in our country. Getting rid of penalty rates is nothing short of giving them a pay cut. So let's go and look at uh, some of the arguments that the employers have consistently put forward because this isn't the first time this has happened. The arguments put forward that we live in a completely different historical context than uh, the one that... uh, created penalty rates, that shops are open all the time now, 24-7, that uh, we live in a different society and that there are no special days. Does that stand up? Well, I think it's complete rubbish and I think most people listening to that argument would say it's complete rubbish. I mean, of course we still have weekends and of course weekends are still incredibly valuable. Children don't go to school on the weekends. All our major social events are held on the weekends. All our major sporting events are held on weekends. I mean really to say that the weekend no longer exists simply because shops and restaurants are open on weekends is is ridiculous. Having to work weekends is still working on sociable hours. I mean, I always use the example and say the day they play the rugby league grand final on a Tuesday is the day you can tell me there's no such thing as a weekend. Uh, So that is just a nonsense. And the other argument they say is that if we reduced wages, so they are admitting that this is reducing wages, if we reduce wages, then we'll be able to employ more people uh, and businesses will stay viable. Well, again, we know that if you look around the world, that simply isn't the case. If you look at the United States, where wages are incredibly low in some industries that rely on tipping, uh, wages are as low as $2.50 an hour. And we know that they have very high unemployment, much higher than Australia. And their economies are actually struggling because people don't have disposable income to spend in those businesses that are local, like restaurants, like cafes, like local shops and local small business. So to take money out of people's pockets by reducing their pay will have a bad effect on the economy because people will not be able to consume locally. And that, I think, is the last thing that particularly small to medium enterprises need. Actually, in the last round of this kind of discussion, it was the Fair Work Commission actually found uh, through research that uh, there was no correlation between lowering wages and increased employment. Isn't that true? Absolutely correct. That is true. Employers have been unable time and time again. They have not been able to put an absolute definite case that penalty rates have an adverse impact on their business. They've never been able to do it and the Fair Work Commission luckily has always found in favour of paying penalty rates to people for working unsociable hours. If you have a look at salaries and wages in this country, and we're talking about the wages of the lowest paid people, the lowest paid people in our workforce, the wages share of national income is the lowest it's been for decades. The profit share is the highest it's been. Labor productivity is very, very high. So workers are doing their bit right now for the economy. They are working really hard. Productivity and output is very high. I don't think you can ask workers to do much more for the economy. Businesses are going to have to start looking elsewhere, I think, to improve their profits or their bottom line. So this kind of attack on penalty rates isn't going to have a knock-on effect where businesses will then employ more people and youth unemployment will go down? No, it's 
simply not an argument that bears any weight if you look around the world. As I said, where wages are low, it doesn't necessarily mean an increase in employment. What we need to maintain viability, global competitiveness, um, increased productivity is a commitment by governments and by employers to invest in innovation, to invest in those industries that we know have a very secure future in this country and to invest in skills and training of our young people, of our unemployed, to make sure that they are employable in those industries that are viable. That's the sort of discussion that we need to have. Unions are prepared to do that, and we just wish that employers and the current government would do the same. The very last furphy that it appears to me there's a, it's a, got the uh, ring of a furphy is that if penalty rates go down, then the consumer will benefit because the prices will go down. Well, once again, history tells us that this simply doesn't happen. What generally happens is that profits increase. Very rarely do we see prices fall. Uh, In this country, we have very, very good living standards. Australians enjoy high living standards, and that's because we have a decent minimum wage. Uh, Living standards are very good. If we start cutting wages as recommended by many employers right now, we will see living standards fall dramatically in this country. Uh, We won't be able to afford everyday luxuries. We won't be able to afford to pay what are all very high rents, high energy costs. And there is no evidence around the world to show that the costs of those things will fall dramatically because wages are cut. Quite the opposite. We're concentrating on hospitality, that sort of stuff. But then when you talk about laundry workers, I was also reading something about where uh, the company wanted the workers to start work at 4am instead of 6am and that shouldn't require any special payments. You know, it should just be considered to be straightforward business as usual sort of behaviour. Yes, well, that was a, a submission by a company called Brickworks and we're seeing employers become quite creative at ways to get rid of penalty rates and other extra payments and conditions. So they argue, for example, that that was a health issue, that starting at 4am meant that workers would be working in cooler conditions. Uh, They argue that they're quite happy to pay penalty rates after a a six or seven day stretch on the calendar. They're arguing all sorts of different things, but it takes away from the fact that penalty rates exist solely to compensate people for working unsociable hours, unsociable shifts, and they are an important part of people's take-home pay. Those two things don't change, no matter how inventive uh, employers get at trying to argue to remove them. What's going to happen next? Well, the uh, next step is once we get through the uh, award review process, the Productivity Commission review into the Fair Work Act will start and we had the terms of reference of that released just before Christmas, very sneakily, kind of a little bit unnoticed really. Uh, But the terms of reference for the Fair Work Act review are very broad. We know that uh, the whole workplace system will be put on trial, so paying conditions including penalty rates, all the rights at work like the right of entry for union officials to actually come into a workplace and talk to their members, unfair dismissal, All of these things will be looked at again by an organisation whose job it is to look at productivity. It's not their job to look at legislation that protects workers. Very often the Productivity Commission sees regulation and legislation as red tape. 
I like to always say that the Fair Work Act is a regulation uh, and legislation that is blue ribbon. It's there to protect workers as a buffer. The Productivity Commission, we are concerned, will have a very different view of it and see it as a barrier to competition or, you know, as a barrier to the free market rather than seeing it for the protection that it actually provides workers. So we are very concerned about the Productivity Commission review and we will be certainly making sure that all workers are aware of the dangers that it presents to their pay, their conditions and their rights at work. You are listening to Stick Together, the only national radio program devoted to industrial news and social justice issues. We have been listening to a chat with ACTU President Jed Carney about the new assault on penalty rates which affect up to 4.3 million workers across Australia. We now turn our attention to the short-term mobility visa being put forward for discussion by the Immigration Department. There has been a lot of dissent in regard to its big sister, the 457 visa. We asked Chris Wright, research fellow at the Sydney University Business School, to outline what the short-term mobility visa is and to talk to the issue of immigration policy as a method of dealing with skills deficits in the Australian economy. Essentially, this visa scheme, according to the paper put out by the Department of Immigration, would essentially be a shorter-term visa than the 457 visa. The 457 visa is a a visa that lasts from between three months and four years and allows employers to sponsor skilled migrants to fill uh, areas of vacancy in their workforce. And this would be a a shorter-term visa that would allow employers to sponsor migrants for up to either six months or 12 months for shorter-term projects. There's been some press reports that these visas wouldn't meet the same language and skills uh, thresholds that the 457 visa requires and and it wouldn't be subject to labour market testing. So employers wouldn't have to advertise the job locally before they engage a skilled migrant. But if you look at the discussion paper, those aspects aren't mentioned. So I'm not sure, I think those journalists may have got information off the record from someone in the department, but it's not actually on the public record as, as that being the case. Business representatives have put forward the notion that temporary 4-5 visa regulations are overly arduous. Would you say that that was a fair criticism? No, I wouldn't say it's a fair criticism, essentially because it's not clear what they're comparing the 4-5-7 visa to. You know, if they're comparing hiring somebody on a 4-5-7 visa compared to hiring any other worker in the labour market, yeah, there are more hoops that have to be jumped through. But if you compare it to visa schemes that are operate in many other parts of the world, it's pretty flexible. It's relatively easy for employers in Australia to engage skilled migrants through former visa channels than it is in most other countries, I would say. There are regulations that employers have to comply with, and there is a fair bit of paperwork involved in these visas. But I would say that that's not a bad thing. We want to have a situation of where employers can't engage a skilled migrant under terms and conditions that are less favourable than any other uh, worker in the labour market. So, you know, the the administration that employers have to uh, comply with is essentially designed to meet that purpose and also to ensure that they're uh, undertaking their obligations to see whether they can fill the vacancy locally first. 
So I think the regulations that are in place at the moment are, you know, are good and actually you know, help to maintain public confidence in the immigration program. Even with 457 visas, the notion of bringing people in to fill skills shortages, that there has been potential rotting in that 457 visa system? Well, um, look, the visa's got a bit of a history to it in that it was created 20 years ago by the... It was initially kind of mooted by the Keating government, then formally introduced by the Howard government. And, and it was pretty lax in terms of the regulation until about uh, 2008, when I guess there were several stories reported uh, of people being engaged under the visa and being you know, mistreated or um, employers not really having much regard for you know, whether they could hire somebody who was already either a citizen or a permanent resident. So but in 2008, and then again in 2013, there have been various regulations introduced that have really tried to, and in quite meaningful ways, I would say, tried to uh, ensure that people coming under the scheme aren't exploited and that employers you know, are encouraged to look locally before uh, someone on a 457 visa is engaged. The regulations that were introduced by the you know, Rudd and Gillard governments came to effect uh, in 2013, um, and there, there are st- still some problems in terms of whether employers have to look locally first. So they don't necessarily have to demonstrate that there is a skill shortage. They've got to advertise the job locally, but that's not a perfect solution. I guess there are still some ways around that among employers. You research in this area. Have you found that it is more difficult to uh, regulate the intended outcomes? Is that what the issue is? A lot of the regulations that have been introduced have been focus primarily on ensuring that people engaged under the visa can, can exercise their rights. There's been less attention towards ensuring that the visa is only used to address you know, sort of genuine skill shortages. Labor introduced uh, this provision called labor market testing when it was in office. But labor market testing is, is kind of widely seen to be a pretty ineffective mechanism for ensuring that these sorts of visas are only and actually do address skill shortages. Uh, one of the issues is that any occupation that exceeds a certain skill threshold, employers can engage workers under the visa. So for example, if for an occupation that's classified as either a managerial, a professional or a technical trades job, that job doesn't necessarily have to be assessed as being in shortage for the employer to use the visa. And there have been some calls for the visa regulations to be tightened to that end. I guess one of the problems with that might be is that, you know, what is a skill shortage today might not necessarily be one in a year's time or even in three months' time. The bureaucratic processes that are involved in assessing whether a job is in shortage or not is kind of necessarily a timely one. So it's it's quite difficult for governments to actually get the policy settings right in this area to ensure that you know that employers are only using the scheme to to address skill shortages. You were saying to me at an earlier date that uh, actually this whole area is much more complex than perhaps the uh, two sides that are represented the business sector and the union representatives of workers as each propound their position on these uh, things. More complex in the sense that uh, you're trying to uh, maintain a uh, machine, effectively, the uh, economy, but also that there are potentially other levers that could be employed uh, rather than these kind of uh, methods, the 457 or the uh, 
short-term mobility visa to do what is apparently to ensure that we have a functioning economy. Yeah, so that's right. I mean, so you know, the stated objective of the visa, of the four high seven visa, and and I guess also the the short term mobility visa that's been proposed is to address skill shortages. Yeah, you know, immigration you know, plays an important role in addressing skill shortages, and I think you know, like some of the research I've done, some of the the data we've analysed suggests that most employers are you know using the scheme as as it's intended, but you know that n- not all are. But I guess to get more to get to your point, there are various mechanisms available to, to governments for addressing skill shortages. You know, there's the education and training system. There's um, social policy to encourage high rates of labour market participation. If we think about you know ten years ago or five years ago, before the financial crisis, you know, when unemployment was was very low and and you know, skill shortages were, were pretty acute. You know. Relying on visa policy made a lot of sense. And look, unemployment's still pretty low in Australia compared to many other countries in the world. But, you know, particularly among younger people, you know, the unemployment is higher and rising. And look, it seems to, from my preliminary assessments, it looks like the education and training system isn't doing a particularly good job of meeting the skill shortfalls that exist in the economy. Governments have tended to look towards immigration as as a kind of a relatively easy solution to skills and training. And there's, there's understandable reasons for that, because essentially, in this day and age, the, the nature of the modern economy, it, it is quite hard to, to be able to make education and training fit or, or, or responsive to employer needs. But, but nevertheless, I think that there should be more attention looking towards our long-term economic future. We need to encourage employers to try to meet their labour needs, primarily through the, you know, the local labour market. There's two reasons for this, and that's, it's undesirable from any perspective, to have a situation of where 15% of younger workers are unemployed and the government have a responsibility to give those people opportunities. But secondly, is also that, you know, immigration is an inherently unstable policy area. You know, people tend to have pretty conservative views around, you know, towards immigration. And, and what we've seen in Europe and the US is that public opinion can turn against immigration very, very quickly. And, you know, I guess you see that in Australia pretty starkly around asylum seekers. But it could just as easily happen in relation to skilled migration. So, you know, look, I'm somebody who supports uh, a liberal skilled migration policy, but I think that there is an inherent risk in relying too much upon skilled migration as a part of labour market policy. This actually uh, forms the nub of the uh, disagreement, I'd say, the the line in the sand that's drawn between worker representatives and the attitude of the federal government that we have at the moment. What are the reasons for why a government would have responsibilities to actually upskill youth, for example, instead of taking an option without needing to do the training? Yeah, frankly, it's, it is, it's easier for governments to look abroad, you know, because training costs money. It's an uncertain investment, you know, at one level. Like as I said before, you know, what, what is a skill shortage today isn't necessarily a skill shortage uh, in a few months' time, and especially, you know, skilled apprenticeships take, you know, usually up to four years. So what is the obligation? Well, you know, I guess um, there's a social contract that exists between citizens and their government that citizens have certain responsibilities and also have certain rights and and, and governments have certain obligations to fulfil, you know, to ensure that they have access to economic opportunity. At that level, they've got a responsibility. But at another level, I mean, I sort of think we're looking at the direction in which the global economy is headed. We're shifting 
increasingly towards a service and knowledge economy, education skills are going to become are important and are going to be much more important for for nations to you know kind of compete on the global stage and and therefore the, the most sensible investment that the governments can make in this economic context is to invest in you know, citizens and permanent residents. Labor and Liberal governments have tended to pass the buck a bit when it comes to education and training and I think that a real shame you know there could be a lot to be gained from looking at kind of the models that exist in Scandinavia in northern Europe Germany about you know the role that government plays to really encourage employers to invest in the skills of their workforce where government plays a strong role in the education system from primary school up this is one area where I think Australian governments have really dropped the ball to a large degree yeah, for a long time, invest more in training, and also how they coordinate across these policy areas. You know, there's, in, in policy terms, you know, there's a whole range of policy areas w- that can be used to address the skills needs of the economy. There's migration, there's education and training, there's industrial relations, there's social policy you know, around um, work-life balance, uh, you know, um, active labour market policies to get unemployed workers and older workers into the workforce. These policy areas are treated as completely separate by governments in Australia and have been for a while. And if you look at some of the innovations that are occurring abroad, it's focused on how do you you achieve greater coordination between these areas. I think that's something that Australian governments need to look at more carefully uh, rather than just giving in to the the reactive knee-jerk demands of employers such as around this visa. <laughs> Look, you know, I, I think it's also important to recognise, you know, that you know, a quarter of the Australian workforce is born abroad and Australia is, is a nation of immigrants, but also the Australian labour market is, is a labour market of immigrants to a, a very large degree as well. Yes, yeah, so immigration's always played a very strong role compared to other countries in workforce development in Australia. One of the problems I have, though, at the moment is that, you know, the governments are using this for a specific objective, that is to address skills shortages. But... Skill shortage is a really flimsy concept. Often what an employer means by a skill shortage isn't isn't necessarily a shortage of technical skills and qualifications. It's often a shortage of people willing to work under certain conditions or a shortage of people with certain attributes. One of the problems I have is that you know these visas they are addressing technical skill shortages in some parts of the labour market, but not in all parts of the labour market. And it would be fine, I think, for governments to say, look, you know, if we had a, a policy of population expansion uh, like we had in the post-war era. Yeah, there is an ideological element to this as well, but there's a a fair degree of policy laziness to this area too, I think, as well. I mean, I think governments are also being just quite lazy in in terms of thinking about how they can best meet the needs uh, and the interests of the workforce and the economy going forward and a tendency to to fall back on on the easier solutions, which, as I said before, are also the politically risky solutions too which could fall apart at any moment, you know, if we're, if we're honest about it. You know, many unions consistently say that, the, that there should be greater encouragement in training, and, and, and there should be, but the, the labour market is very different to what it was 30 years ago, and that some of the big employers that were very good around apprenticeships were privatised, were downsized. Employers are often reluctant to invest in training because there's a, you know, often a real worry that if they do invest in apprenticeships that their workers will be poached by other, other employers, uh, you know, that... There's a real kind of collective action problem. That's a good um, reason for why uh, training and apprenticeship should be supported by the state, by the general good. Well, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. The one other dimension to this, though, is that you know, there's quite high rates of skilled immigration too in Australia. I mean, immigration has to play some, certainly some 
probably sizable part in all this, but I guess the point I'm really trying to make, there's just been a, not enough attention being paid to the other policy solutions. That's it for Stick Together this week. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at stick.together at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. Thanks to Jed Carney and Chris Wright for talking to us today. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.